Welcome to the Limited Upside Live Chat. Mike Prada here. Ben Epstein, who's typing on a computer there. No chance. Hands are hands are free right now. Well, then I don't know. All right. All right, you got me. I was typing a little bit there. I was looking to see if you had tweeted out properly the link to this uh, this this locker room chat we're having. Well, thank you for keeping me honest, Ben. I really appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that I'm going to be have bad audio at different points. Um, hey, that was a super fun weekend of game ones. Super fun weekend of game ones. I don't know what you thought. Absolutely. I, look, I, the last time we watched playoff basketball was in a bubble, and just the aesthetic, the difference in the feel of fans back. That alone made made things just more fun. I mean, we, we'll get into each individual uh, series and, and and the games that were played this weekend. But off the bat, that was my first. The first thing that jumped out at me was fans matter uh, significantly. Yeah, though I, it's interesting. I don't know if fans all mattered in the positive for the home team. So I, I do want to talk about this. Uh, but yeah. Real quick for those who are here and those who are coming in, um, we take questions on air if you want us to talk about any series. Ben, I'm sure we're going to talk about the Wizards Sixers series because of our the teams we root for and because you were at game one, as you hinted at. So I do want to ask you about what that was like. Uh, that was probably also the worst game of the eight. Is that a fair way of putting it? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, probably the worst game yeah. of the eight. Yeah, probably, probably. So I don't know how it wasn't a particularly uh, well played game. Um, I think for a number of reasons, um, but we'll get into that. And yeah, the, the level of play, the quality of the game, uh, the Suns Lakers game probably was the other one that that paired nicely with the, the Sixers Wizards. But uh, again, we'll, we'll talk about all of the. Uh, you've watched every single game. I will be honest about the couple that I uh, that I've only caught the extended highlights of. Mm-hmm. Um, but we will get into those. Where do you want to start, Mike? What's what's the yeah, series? Yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, for those of you guys who are in here, feel free to direct us. One thing I will say is because this audio goes out to the Limited Upside podcast feed, we're probably going to not want to talk too much about the two games that are happening on Monday night. If you have a question about Bucks Heat or Blazers Nuggets, you can ask it. We're probably not going to want to spend too much time on it because some people listen to this show via the podcast feed and that information might be outdated by then. So, uh, again, we'll take those questions, but probably going to keep those those chats to a minimum. Uh, ben, uh, let's start with Suns-Lakers just because you mentioned it. Like, when you said it paired well with that game, what do you mean? Do you mean it was also a bad game? Because I don't think it was a bad game. I thought it was an am- awesome game. Yeah, not that it was a bad game. Um, I think it was just one of those. Uh, well, I'll start with this: the intensity of the Suns Lakers game was was high. It felt like a, a later game in in the series and potentially a later round matchup. So that was different than the Wizards and Sixers. Um, if we're going to kind of keep this comparison going, you know, neither mm-hmm. of the Lakers and Suns are are happy to be here. I think there's a little bit of that in the Wizards series, and then the flip side of that with the Sixers is they have this oppressive fan base of expectations right now that isn't even that doesn't let itself have fun. Now, I think the Suns fan base is the opposite of the Sixers fan base, but yeah. I'll get into that in a minute. Um, but no, it was a, it was a decently played game. I couldn't the flow of the game because of two things: injuries and Anthony Davis is playing very poorly. And acknowledging that after the game made it a little bit weird. I'm not sure it was a precursor for the rest of the series. It wasn't poorly played. In fact, it was, it was pretty, pretty well played. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm not sure what we, what we learned from that game. And I, I want to kind of ask 
a few questions here, Mike. I want to pick your brain about what we learned okay. from game game ones in general, and then yeah, and if if that matters, you know, because I think there might be a little bit of overcorrections uh, that occur throughout the the rest of the series, or, or regular corrections. I'm sorry that occur throughout the rest of the series yeah. for what might be overstated game ones. Do you right. think that the Suns Lakers game is a precursor for the rest of that series? Or do you think it was a little bit anomalous, given that the Lakers played a playing game of high intensity, a, a game seven field? Right. Uh, you know, they've talked about their legs, their health. They honestly just haven't played much together. And the Suns have been one of the healthiest teams this year playing, uh, you know, essentially relatively injury free ball. Right. Well, it, as far as whether that game is a precursor, I think the the problem with the the reason it wouldn't be is because Chris Paul's injury. I mean, he was not dribbling the ball with his right hand for yeah. two thirds of that game. So if, if he's not able to do that for the whole series, like that, that's a problem. <laughs> I think everything that happened before, there was a lot. I thought that was interesting takeaways. The one place I do want to start and I, 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 I want to zoom back out and then we can kind of, I want to get into the nitty gritty of that game. Cause I loved the way the Suns played is it's interesting to me that the Suns were the only home court team that really drew a lot, something positive from their home crowd. Home teams went four and four on the weekend and three of those four wins were less than impressive wins by the favorite. You had the Sixers, Brooklyn kind of struggling until the fourth quarter. Uh, yeah. What was the other home win that happened? Why am the, I blanking? The, the, the Bucks won. Yeah. I mean, that game was just a total slog. So, Phoenix was the only one where it's like, yeah, this energy is actually pushing us forward. Whereas I feel like it worked against a lot of teams like the Knicks. I think it really worked against them. They were Mm -hmm. really chaotic in that game uh, with the home crowd. I think it worked against Utah uh, quite a bit. I think it worked against uh, less so the Clippers game because there just weren't as many fans. And I think less so the Nuggets game because I think it may just be that Denver's just not as good as Portland right now. But I think it definitely did in the Sixers game too. And I think there's a reason it did and it worked well in the Suns game. And that is the Suns displayed a terrific commitment to pushing the ball at every opportunity. Before Chris Paul went down, he was playing a masterful game. He was pushing off makes. He was tearing the ball up the court off misses. He was getting into their stuff really early. One of the keys too with Phoenix is that it's a total commitment to running. They all run. So you have Mikhail Bridges, who I think is running the lane so well. He he just he, he gets up the floor. All the DeAndre Aiden I thought had maybe his best game as a pro, as weird mm-hmm. as it sounds. Maybe that's a little bit of an over exaggeration, but certainly the most complete game I've ever seen him play. And they did it because I think that was really important for a couple of reasons. One is that the Lakers, as you said, have kind of labored and they're not 100%. They've been through a play. And the other is that the Lakers have a great defense. And so as the more you can use your speed, the better you can be. And it, it's so weird to say like, hey, a Chris Paul team pushing the ball won them the game. But that's what happened. And now the question, if Chris Paul hadn't gotten hurt, I would say, yeah, that I think that is that can be portable to the other games. With Chris Paul injured, I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I, I'm I'm curious about the severity of it. Like the, the idea that he was favoring it so much to the point where he wasn't y- using it, <laughs> um, it, it speaks to the, probably how injured he was. And I, this is a guy who's just had one annoying, unfair injury after another come playoff time. Thankfully, in a weird way, it's his hand and not a hamstring um, or, or something where you know it's going to be 
devastating for the rest of the time. But again, the way that everyone was around him, it felt like it was bad right away. When you're getting reports from Woj that he is returning, it does kind of make you think, well, is he returning because adrenaline and, and for this game? Are we going to find out uh, right. today or tomorrow or whatever that, that it's way worse? Um, this is obviously where it's nice that Cameron Payne has become such a good backup point guard, but there's no replacing Chris Paul. Yeah, and until Cameron Payne got thrown out for yeah, that skirmish. Which was a little ridiculous. I don't know, man. The, the NBA, sure, I guess if that's the bar to get thrown out. I think crossed it, but I don't, I don't know. I, it I, was a I, weird, it was a weird interpretation. So what they did, what they decided was two different he, technicals, right? Yeah. Two different technicals on the same play. I guess one technical for the initial hit and then one technical for throwing the ball at Alex Caruso. Correct. Yeah. That's okay. sort of a, I mean, I guess tech, it's like one of those things that's like technically correct, but doesn't feel right. Um, that's right. That's right. Do you think, what do you think about the way Devin Booker played like does is this a long-term problem for the Lakers or were they just not ready I mean that's I think an interesting I mean this 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 week this game was a story of a lot of great debut playoff performances you where you had Trey Young as well and John Morant and uh, a number of other players but Booker really carved up a Lakers team that like you would think is like well suited to guarding him and they couldn't guard him yeah, I tend to I tend to believe that the best scorers in the league now are just so good that they get there. It's like I, I saw this with Bradley Beal yesterday. You see this with Booker. It, offense trumps defense, even if the defense is amazing. There's just such a, a high level. And in Booker's case, like he shot fifty percent from the field, uh, thirty four points, eight assists, seven rebounds. It felt like he did have six turnovers, so it's not like he had this like you know this perfect game, if you will, but look, he played 45 minutes yesterday. And that, that to me, that says the Suns are aware they need to ride Devin Booker offensively. This wasn't a high scoring game, probably the lowest scoring game of the first, uh, first slate of first games. And I think Booker is just that guy. I've, you know, I've said this for a long time on, on our podcast here in between us that I, I hold Booker in a very high regard in terms of the overall best players in the NBA, probably higher than most. Um, and, Look, this is an opportunity for all these people to kind of start writing their narrative come playoff time and, and a changing of the guard where Devin Booker is the best player in the game yesterday that involved Anthony Davis, LeBron James, Chris Paul certainly feels like it. Um, that being said, man, you know, playing 45 minutes a night will take something out of your legs the next day or the next game. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, shooting an efficient 50 percent from the field, three of seven from three five of six from the line. You know, it's that's a Devin Booker game. He's a he's an elite scorer. And I wonder how much yesterday's game was a reflection of weird in-game injuries, the flow of the game, which was essentially they were up by about, what, 8 to 12 points for most of the fourth quarter, most of the, most of the second half. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, and so when you keep a team at arm's length and you can run your offense through your best player, that's optimal. You know, I wonder what the Suns look like in, in their first punched-in-the-mouth moment. But I'm not sure this is team, this Lakers team, as they're currently composed, is going to do that. The Lakers need to reevaluate their starting five. Uh, will that be something that Vogel does in game two? I, yeah, I when, when that, is he going to just bench Andre Drummond? Yeah, like, I don't see point? how you play Andre Drummond. Yeah, exactly. So, so here's the pro, so here's the challenge that I think the Lakers have with that is mm-hmm. when they they went to the small lineup pretty early, if mm-hmm. I recall in the first quarter, and then I think they brought Harrell in. But they were they went to that early. One of the and this is why I this is what I did not expect to happen in this series. And so if this continues, like then I think the Lakers are in real trouble. When that happened, DeAndre Ayton was switched on to Anthony Davis. 
they tried to post him and DeAndre Ayton not only stoned him, uh, but also would then run out and run those drag screens with Paul and get layups, you know, in that way. And so if you're going to play small, you're inviting that matchup, Ayton versus AD. And mm-hmm. in that game, at least, Ayton did a really good job. And that if Aiden can keep doing that, that obviously neuters the impact of going small to some degree. The other thing that's interesting and circling back to Booker mm-hmm. is with Booker, I, he's a great, he's certainly a great scorer. What's interesting about him. And I, I, I mentioned this after the game, I thought it was sort of an interesting thing with also with Bradley Beal and Philly, you know, he's a physical, tough, direct player. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you think in soccer, like, a guy that just will go right at you. You call them like a direct player or a direct team. You know, there's not a whole lot of messing around, right? Mm-hmm. Booker is a really direct scorer. He makes fast, quick moves. He gets separation with his chest, with his uh, hips, and he just comes at you and he will pull up. The Lakers have a lot of really good defenders, but it, it was interesting to me how poorly they did at, containing him on those initial like wide pin downs i mean when chris paul like couldn't dribble he basically turned into a screener and they just kept scoring on those wide pin down plays in the second Mm -hmm. quarter and that was because booker kept getting separation away from kcp or whoever was guarding him or caruso i mean those guys are really good defenders kcp and caruso are they physical enough where they can get into booker and disrupt that process so that he's not getting separation and he's not attacking off the catch and he's not kind of just able to kind of surge at you. I don't know. You remember in the finals, Jimmy Butler starred and did exactly that just sort of really digging into your chest, like get kind of basically going underneath you until they put Anthony Davis on him. Well, you can't put Anthony Davis on Devin Booker. So what do you do if you're the Lakers? That's right. And I also wonder, Mike, you know, what's the identity of this Lakers team right here? Like, what is so? If I asked you, if I told you Devin Booker took twenty six shots, I have a pretty good idea for the best player on on the Suns is, or at least who they would you know run their optimal offense through. And they have a point guard, regardless if he has one hand or not, that was going to find a way to make that happen. This Lakers team yesterday, you got sixteen shots from Davis and thirteen from LeBron. No one else had over ten. Caldwell Pope took nine. He was one of seven from three. Some good I, looks. I some good looks. To did, be he fair, did, he did. He did. And the, the theme of this weekend was a lot of teams missing good looks. If I'm going to be honest, that three point yeah. percentage was way down uh, for home teams, actually, and the Lakers for the road team here. But that being said, um, I think there was some jitters, some being in front of the most fans people have played in front of, and there's a psychological component to all of this. But I, I don't know what this Lakers team's identity is. They run some really ugly offense. Drummond can't be on the court. Harold yeah. is exceptionally limited when he's in the game. Kuzma gave you zero points yesterday in 19 minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, you so, need him. You need more from him. Also, because yeah. I I suspect that Kuzma may not be the worst matchup on Booker because of his ability to kind of keep his feet back. But I mean, if he's mm-hmm. he certainly doesn't look it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I it's a question, and and I just think in general, maybe I don't know if they were surprised by how much Phoenix came at them and pushed the ball. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if they were sort of surprised by the physicality. But they certainly looked it. I think, again, tempo was such a huge key to that game. Agreed. The, the, the Suns were able to just turn every – I mean, Chris was running off makes. Um, and that way they sort of stretched the game. Now, here's the good news for the, here's, here's the good news for the Lakers. And we talked a lot about, like, kind of what 
what carries through and what doesn't. I think it's fair to say that Aiton, Bridges, Booker, uh, Cam Johnson, a lot of these guys had like A plus games for them. You know, certainly Aiton yep. played, was eye opening how well he played. And Booker, you know, he did hit a lot of tough shots, uh, even though I, I do think that there is like sort of a strength matchup issue that they're going to have there. Like he did hit a lot of shots. Now, obviously, CP got hurt, but he might still be hurt. A lot of the like sort of supplementary Suns players, because of the speed of the game, had terrific games. Can they do that again? Are they're going to they're going to keep daring Mikael Bridges to make plays. Can he keep doing it? Can Cam Johnson keep doing it? You know, Davey should be better in the future, even if like kind of you have the center problem, you know, I was a, probably a best case scenario for Phoenix and yet they won by nine. So it wasn't like they blew him out. Although a lot of that was Chris Paul. I think that game might've been heading to a blowout if he didn't get hurt. But to me, that's like a sign of a, a good sign. And plus like, if you're Phoenix, like that's the game you have to win. Right. Definitely. Definitely. It's the, Hey, we're here and this is legitimate game. You know, you can't lose game one and, and let that doubt creep in. I also think that, you need to win as many games and whether that's winning the series or extending it, you know, or I should say winning as many games early on as possible where LeBron is still absolutely not a hundred percent. He looks grounded right now. Uh, yeah. Whether, you know, and that's, that might end up being the end of, you know, after all the things you just mentioned about pace and, and playing above their, uh, maybe above their expected levels for you know, role players in the suns. LeBron's not himself right now. And no. he's not even, he's not even close. And so, you know that he he covers up a lot of the issues and 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 what I would consider the the X's and O components of the Lakers misfit lineups, and even yesterday LeBron was still a plus two, and I don't really thoroughly believe in plus minus, but you know it's it's the type of situation where he has helped them overcome specifically last year in in the running to the title a lot of their inefficiencies, and he's not that guy right now, and he's he's laboring. He does no lift off the ground when he goes to the hoop. Um, he's definitely playing at a slower overall pace. He's way less uh, uh, apt to go do the, the grab and go and, and get his team in a transition for an earlier three. Um, you know, and AD's not – we'll see what AD does game two. Very big game coming up for Anthony Davis. Not There's no legacy games in first rounds after you've won the title the year before. But there's yeah. certainly some kind of some kind of put up and show up game coming up for Anthony Davis. So I'm very yeah. curious how he plays in game two. Well, I think for him, a lot of it is the big lineup. He's not as good mm-hmm. in there. And then the small lineup, Aiton played really well. Can Aiton duplicate yeah. that? They did some stuff. I I kind of like some of the actions they were running, and they would have like Davis cutting on what's called an Iverson cut kind of across the front of the key, whether it was to clear a side or go into a dribble handoff. I'd like to see more of that. LeBron, look, LeBron sometimes takes his time getting into series. You know, he's lost mm-hmm. plenty of game ones in his life, so I wouldn't overreact. To me, this is still a toss-up series. Um, okay. Does anyone else have any Suns Lakers questions they want to ask, or anything that they thought about that series before we talk about a different one? Uh, you feel free to make a speaker request. Feel free to send something in the chat. Uh, anything else that we didn't mention? Anything else that you sort of are thinking? I'll give a couple minutes or yeah, seconds or whatever. Second. Yeah, just a few seconds here. Um, doesn't look like there's a whole lot. I, I would, I would like to. Um, Oh, let's move over. Uh, let's move over to the Hawks Knicks game next. Okay, that was that was probably my favorite game of of the weekend uh, for a number of reasons. The intensity of the crowd was was palpable. You're sitting, I'm sitting on my couch, and I'm like, shit. This is maybe the yeah. fan base is just this is just where their heads at, where the fever pitch has you know 
uh, it is so hard to be uh, Madison Square Garden in the New York Knicks franchise and have this entire generation of people who are craving even just a home playoff game. And then it all comes out into some anxiety, which is the crowd was ready and the players necessarily weren't. But the second half of the game yesterday was just electric. Both teams yeah. really, really, really well. I mean, execution was, was pretty high. Shot making was through the roof. There was a couple exceptional games like Alex, Alec Burks, uh, you know, of the, I think I saw someone, I forget who it was. I'd love to give credit, but it was like, I, I always hoped he'd be like Jamal Crawford's heir apparent. And he looked like him yesterday. I mean, he was just as, yeah, he was, he was big, man. Huge. But then you also had, and I went, this is where I want to start with Mike, you know, look, Julius Randle had a bad game yesterday and you had mentioned about how you think playoffs might not, the playoffs might not be as kind to Julius Randle was yesterday a matter of adjustments that are being made against him or was Julius Randle forcing, which is what I, what I think I looked like he was forcing the ball a little bit and settling for a lot of really difficult shots. Um, because at the end of the day, the Knicks lost by two and they got probably one of the worst games of the season from Julius Randle. Now he still had 15 points, but he was six of 23, uh, yeah. which is, it was a poor game um, by him and by the standards he's set. So start, let's start there. And then I want to get yeah. your thoughts on the game as well. I thought I thought more of the second. I didn't okay. really see anything super elaborate that the Hawks did. I think he had a really bad game. I think for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about, although I thought this would be a good matchup for him. Uh, so to me, one of the things, it was a very, it, it, the flow of that game was interesting. It was a very direct game. Mm. You know, it was a very like kind of, not to say that it wasn't a tactical game because there were tactics, but it was a very like, they're attack we're attacking you type of game. The Knicks you mentioned that they started off really poor. I think that kind of messed a lot of things up. They clearly have no use for Alfred Payton anymore in the starting lineup. They've <laughs> got to make a change there. Uh there's no question. Um I think that their adjustment to that was to really kind of spam their guards attacking downhill. They really refocused their team around Rose pick and roll. And then he'd swing back to one of the other guards, whether it's Burks or Quickly, and then he'd attack in a pick and roll and just sort of try to target the weaker Hawk defenders that way. You know, I think they really went at uh, Gallinari in those sorts of plays. They really went at Trey Young. And I thought Trey Young held up really well. And I, I do want to talk about Trey. I thought he was unbelievable in that game. Yeah. In ways that I in ways that go beyond, I think, his numbers, I think um really silenced a lot of the sort of doubters. But that process of how they went at the, the Hawks, I think, while it, I think, got them back in the game and largely worked, I think it kind of rendered Randall's game a little bit of a – he took a back seat mm-hmm. you know, because he wants to catch the ball at the top of the key and survey, and he wants to be running plays. I, I think that the cha- the chaos of that game, combined with the slow start, combined with the strategy of – really going at them with your speed and attacking directly, particularly when Capella was out of the game, I don't think Randall ever got into a rhythm. And so when he had those key moments in the fourth quarter where he's catching the ball uh, on the switch, he's settling. I mean, the shot he hit to give the Knicks a one-point lead, like, that was a bad shot that went Mm -hmm. in. Like, he settled for that shot. I Mm -hmm. I remember thinking to myself, like, what do you – you got to take it to the rack. Every time he got the ball on one of the sides – he settled for a step back too, even though they were overplaying him. He didn't wait. He wasn't patient. All the ways that he has improved this year, he didn't show. And then, you know, what was it, the last possession? Uh, just bad shots. So, you know, he's he's trying to hit home run balls. So I just think that 
it was an effect a little bit of kind of how the game went that he really lost his rhythm. Uh, because I mean, early on, like they couldn't do anything and he was the only guy doing anything. And then suddenly they find a whole new formula and it sort of left him behind a little bit. That's what I think mm-hmm. happened to Randall in that game. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting, right? You mentioned, well, two things. One, Barrett was relegated to the corner three position, even though every time they ran motion, he did have Trey Young on him, essentially whenever they wanted to get him into the post. And I thought they would go to that more Um, because Barrett's, you know, again, someone who you figure they would get some touches down the end, but it turned into the Alec Burks uh, D Rose show. Um, And to a lesser extent, you know, Randall with some bad possessions, but I'm curious what your thoughts are too on, it looked like to me that they could have kept going at Gallinari, that they could have figured out any matchup they wanted with Gallo, assuming the Hawks keep playing Gallo, and they did for many minutes last night. I forget what, I forget did, what he ended Did Gallo saying, close but... the game? I, I honestly don't remember. I need to go check this. Was Gallo in there at the end? <sighs> Man, I need to check that too. Uh, I think it was Hunter in for Gallo, I believe, right? right Hunter so, came back in. So there yeah, you so don't have a, that's one le- That's one less hiding spot, right? And Hunter, right. Played, Hunter played well. I mean, you, you saw a little bit why – Hunter, his absence kind of at the end of the year hurt them and why his return really helped. Um, yeah. I mean, to me, it, it, as far as like how they go at them, I think the Knicks have got to change some of the rotation stuff up. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what they do, but obviously they're overloaded with playmakers in the second unit and totally underloaded in the <laughs> first unit. And so, like, guys like like Reggie Bullock didn't do a whole lot, and Barrett didn't do a whole lot. They ran some stuff with Randall and, and Bullock to try to get Young in the action, and Trey did a great job hedging out, did a great job switching, did a great job recovering. I thought he was really underratedly good on defense uh, in that game. So if you're, if you're the Knicks now, you have to be careful, right, because quickly and Rose as a combination works really well. We saw it in this game. And you you do want to have – I mean, one of your advantages against the Hawks is it's not a talent advantage. And the reason I thought the Knicks would be a good fit in this series is that they've got just a lot of guards that can attack. You want to preserve that because the Hawks, you get their defense moving. They're much worse because they do have weak spots. Uh, Collins was pretty good defensively, but that's another one you can attack. And obviously Trey attacking if he's attacking a closeout. And they tried to get Randall attacking a closeout a couple times. It didn't quite work. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, you're sort of relegating Randall and, and uh, Barrett. And so how do you manipulate those matchups? Do you, I, I wonder if they – I mean, the other thing too is like they play Frank Nielakina for like uh-huh. two possessions in the entire game, both at the end of the half. The first – both times, I think, you know, did Trey score at the end of the first half? Because obviously we know he scored at the end of the second half. No, um, I, believe, I believe it was just that last possession where it was uh, as cold okay. as one can be to come in and have to guard a pick and roll from 30 feet away from the basket. Yeah, I mean, Trey just, like, <laughs> was savage. The, like, spin, spin, reverse spin move. Like, I felt bad for, for Frankie uh, yeah. there. But, like, Alfred Payton, you're just giving them a hiding spot. Um, I want to switch gears to the Hawks, though, because I don't know about you. Like, I... I think a lot of people don't think I'm a huge Trey Young fan. I think there are elements of his game where I feel like I've maybe downplayed him. I thought he played pretty rough at the beginning of the year. I thought Trey Young was, I mean, absolutely incredible in that game. Not just, uh, no, I got you one second, but I just want to finish this point. But not just because of the scoring and the the floaters and whatever, but just also the the poise, yes. the timing, the timing of the, they the way that he just sort of carved them up in that double drag stuff, the 
defensive effort, like I said, I thought it was terrific. I thought he was really locked in. And, you know, and the timing of some of his shots, I mean, certainly the shushing of the MSG crowd. I wonder if, I mean, this is another thing where, like, the crowd maybe worked against the Knicks here. Like, maybe, like, does Trey Young, like, get amped for that and whatever. But I I just thought, um, and then I want to invite Noah on, but I just thought that was, like, that might change. That That's, like, a reputation-changing game for Trey Young for me. Yeah. Look, this is where you make – this is where you make a little bit of your money, right? This is where you make your reputation. I, I think that someone, and I just as, a, as an example, but there are plenty of Heat players from last year that are looked at a little bit differently right now because of the way they performed. Trey Young's never had the opportunity to just, play a match just say, in the playoffs. Just, just say Jimmy Butler, man. Just say Jimmy Butler. No, I don't, I don't just mean Jimmy. I thought Dragic uh, played great in the playoffs yeah, last year. Yeah, I, I know. People I know. expected more from Tyler Hero. But yeah, sure. Like, yeah, Jimmy. Jimmy's a guy who yeah, the expectations are now even higher because of the way he played. But look, Trey Young, my, I, two things. The, the way he works a pick and roll, and a lot of these younger guards are incredible at this. Um, and you know, we'll talk about John Moran, I'm sure, at some point in, in the process here. But yeah, he, he, he's great. He made an incredible pass to Bogdanovich in the corner that was a no-look off of one foot going the opposite direction that was an important play yeah. again in the fourth quarter. I mean, he just made every right read, every right decision. Um, you're right. Manned up on defense significantly more than I think people realize that he's capable of. But it just mm-hmm. felt like if you want to have the ball in someone's hands who you trusting and control the game at the pace you want to go at McMillan obviously relies on Lou Williams in the second unit and Trey young in the, in the, in the, right. in the main unit. And they're both great at running that pick and roll. And they both, and Lou Williams, super important minutes last night. Absolutely. As well. Yeah. Know, cannot be slept on and how, and how valuable that was. But the last thing I'll say about, uh, about Trey, you know, look, he took three, three pointers, right? I think a lot of people looked at him as bad shot selection um, you know, sort of this like guy who was maybe a little free with pulling up from wherever. And he's cor- McMillan's done an incredible job of correcting that uh, in Trey's game. And when you look at it last night, he took, he made one very deep three. He attempted three total on the night and he created, uh, I'm trying to think right now. He created nine opportunities for Bogdan, or I think it was seven opportunities. Of the he, nine just kept, he just kept getting in the lane, man. He, yes, he kept getting in the, the floater. It was exactly. incredible. Uh, yeah. Noah, what uh, what do you? Th- I, I brought Noah on. I know you wanted to talk about this series. I see a couple other people have want to come on, and we'll get to you guys after this. But Noah, what what's what did you want to talk about with this this game one? So yeah, first of all, uh, I mean, you know, uh, Trey Young came. He played like fantastic in his playoff debut. Made me feel a lot better about my Hawks and six pick beforehand. Uh, I, I, I think it's interesting because I think both teams have room to grow from how they played. I mean, the Hawks kind of like got every single look that they, they wanted. They couldn't have asked for anything more. I mean, Randall's shooting should regress. I, th- I thought the Hawks, they ran some all-bench lineups that I didn't understand. But, I, I mean, yeah, it was just – it was a, an incredibly fun game to watch. And, and Trey's a fun player. And I think all those – or not the, all those years, but, like, last year spent just jacking up shots. Not jacking up shots, but shooting a lot of deep pull-up threes has actually helped because now defenses expect that. And, you know, they're super jumpy and, and it helps them get downhill. That You know what? That's an interesting point, too, combined with uh, what Ben said about the three threes. Like, Trey is – you know, Trey's not shooting as many of those sort of Trey shots. And so he's sort of, I think you're right. He's using a little bit of that, the reputation against him. I was, I got to say, I was a little surprised. I mean, 
the double drag screen where is basically when you've got two bigs and Trey's kind of floating off both of them and one rolls and one pops. Like that was the staple of the Trey Young experience for a number of years. The Knicks, I thought the Knicks would do a better job defending those. But what I thought was noteworthy is that they, I think they struggled, certainly the guys that they had defending on the ball and also the guy in the drop. Like I think they struggled with some of the angles that Capella was taking and Capella was rolling. And Trey just, again, did a great job of just running people into them. My suspicion is that the Knicks are going to be much more aggressive in game two maybe try to take the ball out of his hands and get up on him. I think maybe they were a little worried about fouling him. I'm not sure. But they kind of let him go run those double drags in ways that I was a little surprised by. If you were the Knicks, um, what would you do to you know stop him just getting downhill every time? Yeah, so I, I think what I would do is I would try to be a little more physical with him on the ball. I, he was running those out. You, they kind of whoever was defending him, uh, which whether it was Peyton, you know, maybe you take. I think you take a look at Neil Akina for like a starter minutes, even though Neil Akina got burned. The guards were a little bit gave him a little too much space, and he was kind of able to run them in to both of the screens very well, and then the Knicks play such a drop scheme that with their big back that he's, he's uh, able to get his floater. If I were them, I might go a step higher on the big side and a step closer on the guard side. And I would be on the lookout for, I mean, I don't know if they were quite ready for the way Capella rolls into the screener and like the way he his angles. I think they need to be more up on that uh, and fix that. Um, but I would not what I would not do is I would not trap him. I would just try to tighten up what I'm doing. I think size is an important thing here. I, I would try to go a little bigger on him, if I'm being honest. Who would you that, put on him then? Yeah. So I was I was thinking about this a little bit. It, the problem is all their guards are essentially the same size. They're like maybe and again, I, I don't know what quickly looks quickly looks like um in that matchup because he usually plays all of his minutes with Rose I would probably not put Rose on him for the sake of how offensively important he is and he just played 38 minutes and Tibbs has a little bit of a history of overusing Derek Rose to the point where he's ineffective <laughs> um, which I would worry about as a Knicks fan um, Rose not built to play 38 minutes and be the primary for most of the minutes he's in I right. tried Barrett on him a little bit when the Sixers have matched and, play, and again I only say it's because the Sixers played the Hawks I think two or three times in the final, I think it's twice in the final 10 games of the season. And they, each time they just put a little size on, him, you know, and you're going to, the two things you run into is one Trey's very crafty. And you mentioned fouls. I know a lot of Knicks fans feel a little jaded from some of the, the, the contact at the end of the game. And, and, you know, I, I felt there was, a, there was contact and the way that the refs called it, they were never going to reverse it specifically on the RJ Barrett play. Um, but I might try Barrett on him. That's a good um, idea. Not, you know, it's not like you have the Hawks um, that their other guards or other wings are like guys who are going to be attacking the rim. They're court spacers, you know, Bogdanovich, uh, Herter, you know, these are guys who, and Herter can go to the rim a bit, but if we're talking about guys who you don't have to worry about the physicality component as much or keeping them in front of you. It's more being able to close out. I might try Barrett on him. Yeah. Just to start next. It's game. An interesting idea. And yes, I'm curious. So, what, Tibbs, then go ahead. Noah. No, I was going to say about that. So I was looking over all the Hawks on um, field goal attempts from the game and one play really stood out to me. So I know that they ran Spain a couple times and I think this was the one, yeah, this Spain for the Hawks ended in a Trey Young pull up like a 17 footer, which is, you know, by all means a win, a win for the defense. And what I noticed is that like, as soon as you, um, you know, there was 
a quick window for uh, um, Capella got open a bit. And then also uh, RJ Barrett, who was in the corner tag. So there was kind of a lob or uh, a corner three. So at that exact moment, I think uh, Reggie Bullock stepped up hard in front of him and just kind of he made sure to, to block out, you know, his vision his like line of sight because at the end of the day Trey is small so I I think that that could be the strategy to just yeah. block me a sight line because his passing is just it was right. destroying him. I agree uh so for those who don't know by the way when Noah says Spain what he's basically referring to is a, a double staggered pick and roll where you'll see a screen up top and then there's sort of a second screen with like a guard somewhere along the middle of the floor, uh, like in the foul line extended. So it's kind of, that's what uh, those are called Spain pick and rolls. But yeah, I think, I think you're right. And also, I mean, the Knicks uh, showed early from the wings and Trey dissected that and hit. I mean, you, you said Bogdanovich, that corner, that, that pass you mentioned, Ben, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, maybe again, like if there, I think that you guys are right. Size on him will help because if he's coming off pretty clear on the pick and roll, he can see that pre-rotation, uh, here, it's an easy pass for him. Uh, Alec, I'm going to bring you on. Alec, what do you want to talk about? Hey, um, I want to keep it Knicks Hawks, but okay. the other side of the floor a little bit. And um, I don't mean to be so negative, but Julius Randle couldn't shoot at all last night. And there were a lot of fans in that arena, is all I'm saying. <laughs> and... There haven't been fans in the arena all year, and now there are, and now he's looking like old Julius Randle. So what do we do? Well, it's funny. We we talked a little bit about that early in the show, too. Like, the fans back in the city, I I forget. I think I saw, what did Seth Partnow say the shooting three-point percentage was over the weekend? The home team shot worse percentages from three than the road teams in all the games but one. I just can't remember which was the one. Yeah. I saw yeah. that, like, the highest any team shot was, like, 33 years old. What I think they should actually look at is look at it at the right side of the floor and the left side of the floor. Because most stadiums had, like, you know, the vaccinated section was full. And the <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, empty. man. Interesting. So maybe, so maybe guys are, you know, hitting more shots on one side of the floor. Yeah. <laughs> so here, here's the number. Uh, during the regular season, uh, the teams that made the playoffs, this is via Seth Part now. 37.6% from three and the over the game ones, 33.1% from three. So mm-hmm. it is an interesting element. I mean, this I think is perhaps more relevant to Utah, which we'll talk about and Philly to a lesser extent, but you know, maybe it, it people have said players have said that depth perception is improved when there are no fans. And when you add fans, it jacks up your depth perception Maybe there is something to that. Obviously, two games is too small a sample to say with the shooting, uh, whether it's going to be worse across the board. I mean, generally, it's worse in the playoffs, period. But that is an interesting thought, particularly with a guy like Randall, who had a career year from three. So it's it's worth noting. I mean, I, I think Randall made mistakes that were not just missing shots, but it is true. I mean, if, if Julius Randall is only, what, like a 33% three-point shooter, what was he before this year versus what he was this year? That obviously changes the player he is. So, uh, Joe, jo, I want to – this is a good question. I want to get um, – I'm going to mute the two of you real quick. Or have you guys mute? I want to get Joseph on because I think Joseph wants to talk about a different series. Uh, uh, Joe, what's up? Nothing. Thanks for having me on, guys. How you doing? Here we are good. We are good. Great game ones, man. Great game yeah. ones. What's uh, what's yeah. the series you want to get into, Joe? 
Well, I kind of want to talk about – I was curious about the Clippers games, Clippers-Mavs, as well as uh, Suns-Lakers. So kind of this question I had about the Clippers all year was how are they really generating all their open three-pointers, right? Because they don't have, like, a clear point guard that comes down and runs pick and roll all day with a spread floor. And I know they do quiet post-ups and sometimes they get doubled, but – like, it just seemed like they struggled to get downhill and create openings against Dallas. And I'm not sure why that is. Maybe they don't have a driver. Are, are you guys seeing anything similar? Like, I don't, I just, I struggle to see where the consistency is for the, getting open looks, but it's clear that they're good at it. So this is more of a, in, in, this is more of you guys informing me or educating me in this, in this case. Hmm. Interesting question. Now, the Clippers, obviously, the number one shooting team in the regular season. What did they shoot in game one? I'm just looking this up. Uh, 11 of 40. Yeah, 11 of 40. 43 is not. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, 43 is 11 of 40. 27.5%. The Jazz shot, what, 12 of 47, I think? <laughs> like, 12, 12, uh, 12 of 30, uh, 17 of 36. 46. No, 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 the Mavs did, you're saying. The Mavs did, yes. I'm sorry, yeah. you said the Jazz. Yeah, you switched the Jazz. on me there. Yes, yes. Um, I guess the, the question, the follow the question is basically, I mean, one of the things that has often been asked of the Clippers is like, do they have enough of a downhill threat? And, you know, Noah, maybe actually I'm going to toss this over to you because you're the Clippers expert. Um because I don't have a great answer for this right off the bat. Like, what do you think about that question? All right. So this actually isn't a great time to put me on the spot. I, I, I missed the game. I'm, I'm catching up now. I'm in the, the second, okay. uh, the, the second quarter. I can offer a couple things or as to how they get the, the threes. I mean, the, the, their process, of course, is you get an, an advantage and then you find the open man. But instead of like other teams, for example, uh, Luka Doncic, that process all happens with a single guy. He creates advantage, breaks down the, the, the defense. He, he Maybe he moves the defense with his eyes and then he finds the open guy. The Clippers out, outsource it a bit. Like maybe you get that advantage with uh, Paul George coming off a pin down because, you know, he, he's a great shooter that create puts the defense in a pinch. And then maybe you know he he makes a simple a simple read and the ball gets uh, swung around. Mm-hmm. So kind of baby steps, or maybe you know you give Kawhi uh, the ball in the post. A guy comes to double. He passes it to Nicholas Batum, and Batum gets it to the open guy. So that's how usually how they generate the read. Um, uh, hey hey is, Joe, do you have like the, a lot of background noise, or someone does? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I was. I'm just walked outside. Actually, is there a way? Oh, well, yeah. All right, yeah. I there you go. Mute. Okay, sorry. Go. So go. Go ahead, Noah. Sorry. Yeah, so that's how. I, that's how they get in threes. I mean, what I'd watched so far, the offense looked fine. Uh, I mean, Reggie Jackson playing almost half the game probably didn't help because <laughs> if, if if Reggie Jackson isn't getting hot and hitting threes, he's not a ball stopper, but he doesn't make good decisions he doesn't make them uh qu- quickly he doesn't always make the right one so he kind of just like right. s- stops their their chain oh, he was he, the- he was awful in that game yeah he, re- he was awful <laughs> it's like he plays he plays 21 minutes and it's like what did, well, why are you playing him 21 minutes we hadn't gone to the clippers defense yet that was my case for he shouldn't have played at all in that game right. If he's not going to get hot and give you some threes, and he's 
shouldn't be out there. But I mean, yeah, from from what I've seen so far, it, the Clippers started off badly. It didn't seem like a terrible game, right? Um, I mean, I mean yeah, they, they missed a it, bunch it, of threes. It just it just really sticks out when Luke is on the other end getting a good look for Dallas every time, and then you have Batum and Reggie who. I don't even really trust to attack a closeout of <laughs> like 40% of the time. So it's like, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure if Ty Lu needs to be a little more creative, but like, I, it's just weird. It's almost like I, 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 I trust them to get an okay look, but I don't trust them to have something to go, go. Their offense seems like we're going to shoot a three or we're going to ISO. And then when it's the shooting the three, like I just fail to see where they're, creating that advantage consistently ben what do you what do you yeah, what do you so, think ben because i actually have a i have some I, I i have i've thought a little bit more about this question and i do see billy you're i do want to talk about the coverage on lucas billy asked in the chat ben does it do you feel do you trust the clippers offense it feels like sometimes there's a trading off process going instead of a um instead of an actual process of finding an offense if that, I don't, it's hard for me to describe that like a your turn my turn type like, of deal yes exactly like there's a there's an allowance of time and possession that has to be shared and that's just I, to juxtapose that to luca who it is a it is an autocracy on on dallas he gets to decide <laughs> if he's shooting or if or if you know an the autocracy <laughs> that's I mean, uh the bet the ben f scene ten ten dollar word of the day i love it <laughs> But it's, it's true. It's true. You know, it, it's it's sometimes it's nice to have that one decision maker who, you know, obviously Luca is pretty special in the grand scheme of things. Um, but he found the hot hand really effectively. He makes every in this case of game one, he made everyone eat. You know, everyone got a little piece of the pie. And I think sometimes when you watch the Clippers play, it's a conscious decision of who gets the turn when instead of who hmm. is most deserving at the right period of time. And that's what game one looked like. Now, again, Doc Rivers got a lot of shit for that last year, and he probably deserves some of it, to, to be totally fair. Um, but right now, I think there's definitely this kind of, look, time is of the essence in figuring out how Paul George and Kawhi work best together. When, the, when it is a half-court game where you know that the possessions are going to be important at the end, specifically when you're going against a team who can get a shot that they want, like Dallas, I think there's going to be a correction in game two um, and a right. pretty significant one. The Clippers were just non-efficient I'll, on offense yeah. and, and they are an efficient and they are an efficient offensive team. So I'd expect them to score some points in game two um, and do so in a much more aesthetically yeah. pleasing way. I, I look, I look, you know, if you look at like the overall shots in, in the, in the game, look, you, you're talking about off the bench, you had Batum and um, uh, Batum and Rondo essentially play the most minutes. And when those guys come in, they're, they're there to either space the court or facilitate. So the entire time that they were in, they were essentially playing with lineups that they were just in there to help move along. And I say well, that it's like Kawhi. To, look, I mean, think about the way Kawhi played. He shot six threes, which is a pretty good amount for him. He hit one. That's probably yeah. going to correct him too. Yeah. Now, you know, over, overall, Paul George played a, a decent game. I didn't think Paul George was really the problem. He just missed shots, game, you know. He just missed a, few, he missed a few shots, yeah, and I expect him to take more. He needs to be in the 20s in attempts. Kawhi needs to be in the 20s in attempts, and the rest needs to follow so, it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Oh, Joe, I, I want to be the bearer of good news for you because I feel I, – I don't think it was – I think they – for – let's put it this way. For most of the game outside of crunch time, I think they just missed shots. 
I think I think in general there yeah. isn't anything terribly wrong with what they were doing in the first forty two ish minutes of the game. I don't know exactly when crunch time would have started. I mean, I don't think Kawhi, Marcus Morris, Paul George are gonna go three for twenty from three again. Where I think is an interesting problem, and I think there is a tactical fix for this, is that in crunch time, they really struggled to generate offense. To me, the reason for that was entirely very specific. What the Mavs were doing is, so so the Clippers are playing five smalls. If I don't remember, was Ibaka in or not? I, I don't remember. But whatever it was, they're playing a lot of shooters and Rondo. And so what the uh, the Mavs would do is they would wherever Rondo was they would take his man and kind of shade towards the ball and basically try to bait the pass to Rondo. They want, I didn't even notice that they wanted Rondo to get the ball most of the time. Mm-hmm. And whenever I mean whenever they're running the Clippers are running sort of the inverted pick and rolls like you know where you have a guard squeezing for Kawhi they they call them inverted pick and rolls Rondo would pop and they would kind of force the ball to him and then try to scramble back on. They figured that again, four on three for Dallas is manageable. If Rondo is one of the four, the way to beat that. And this is what I would expect from game two. And this is what Tyloo should do is instead of having Rondo on the weak side or popping when he screens for Kawhi or George in those lineups, he should roll to the center of the court, basically turn into a short roller the kind of and and then he can kind of pick out a pass with three guys spread out in the three point line. He's already attacked the bat. He's already close to the basket. It's those three. It's those three against him as one. And in those situations, like he becomes a threat. If you sort of let him float around on the wing, he's not a threat. So to me, that's the fix that I would like to see from their offense. And if they do that, I don't think. I think they can that that is like kind of the way they thread the needle. Um so Yeah, I, and, and we we've seen Rondo be very effective. I mean, he was doing that against Miami in his own last year with the Lakers and I mean he's been great in that role before. So that that makes a lot of sense. It almost seems like their offense with with Rondo and without Rondo needs to be more distinct, honestly. Like it seems like they like this five out thing, but like you just pointed out, if Rondo was on the court, that's just unless he's like directly involved in rolling. Like I, to me, if you're gonna have Rondo in the game, like he's got to be in every play. Because if you just sort of try to stash him, it's like he, his, you're taking away from his strengths. I think they'll clean that up in game two. I, the the more interesting question is what Billy asked, which is is Luka Doncic just too good to do anything but trap him? And let the Mavs play four on three. Now, Luca obviously had a great game. Did you, for Clippers fans, uh, and I assume Joe, you're one of them. Like, did you feel like, like, what did you, did you feel like uh, they did the right things and just got beat? Do you feel like this is a hopeless matchup? Do you think there's something the Clippers can do better? Like, what did you, what did you guys take away from Luca's performance and how to fix that? So I'm actually not a big Clippers fan. I just oh okay, my I got you, but I. I will say though, it seemed kind of weird that did you notice they had a Baca in and then they would drop him in certain instances? Like mm-hmm. I put him into drop coverage. To me, that's just like like why don't why don't you just have Zubach in at that point? And I feel like that helps out your offense with the rim pressure too. Right. I mean, 
if you're going to drop a box, if you're going to drop a box, like I just, I don't understand that at all, really. And that I'd rather run like almost a wing at the five, like KP's not going to post anyone up. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think the reason they took Zubac out is that Zubac was barbecue chickened in that third quarter. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I see where your point is. Um, so I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Ben? Do you think like uh, that, that was more bad Clippers defense or just Luca is unstoppable and there's not much they can do. I think it's not dissimilar to what we talked about earlier with Booker and with um, and with Beal, but even at a way even uh, more kind of you know omnipotent level. Like he controls the mm-hmm. game, and it's it's like if you combined what Trey Young's effect was in the Knicks game and Booker's effect in the Suns game, that's what Luca does all in one. And that's to say, decision making is something he excels at. Getting the game to go at his pace is something he excels at. And then ultimately he is, you know, he is the score, the apex scorer himself. I think it's one of those games where Luke is going to win a game or two or three, maybe even four in this series where he, you know, he is kind of just outplaying um, the, the solutions for the defense. And that happens. You tip your caps. Yeah. There's like a Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, 1980s effect where like the, the ball is in his hands so much. You absolutely know how it's going to be. And everyone else is just kind of like an extension of what Luca decides. Um, that happens. I, I don't think it's like the Clippers have to make some kind of drastic changes. I'd trap him a little bit more. I'd also assume that his three-point shooting around him won't be as good next game. That might change his decision-making as well. Like you're not going to have a five of nine, three game from Tim Hardaway Jr. Or, or a four of five, four, four or five. Yeah. Four or five. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the the supporting cast made all those decisions look significantly better. They miss, say they shoot, uh, and again, they shot 17 of 36 from three. It's 47. I mean, that's the game right there is their 47%. And yeah, I agree. Um, I don't know if Noah, you've actually watched enough of this uh, to, to, th- to have a thought on it. But um, if not, uh, did, did you? Well, I mean, I can comment on the first quarter and a half, I guess. So, yeah, um, I'm just looking at a couple, like, small notes I posted on Twitter, which is they put a wing on Chris Tapps, which I, which I like. They put uh, Zubach on DFS. I mean, he's meant to be Dorian Finney-Smith. He's meant to be the, the weak shooter in their lineup. If he's not, that's an issue. And then, obviously, you know, Luca got a bunch of switches with Zubach, and I'm only talking about the ones in the first quarter that I saw. And I'm fine with that. I'll live with him isoing Zubach, taking uh, some tough shots. I mean, it's like you, you, you can't hope to, to take away everything. Trapping is not going to work against Luka. The Clippers are an old team. Um, if Reggie Jackson is in the game, you just can't trap. That's not going to work. And if Tyler keeps playing Reggie Jackson, then you're not going to be tra- trapping. But but yeah, I think Zubac on Luka is fine. His feet are he's just strong enough and his feet are just quick enough to where he's not going to get totally blown by each time. I'm I'm fine with I'm fine with mm-hmm. it. I'm fine with Zubach switching on to him. So Brian, I didn't see this. Did did Ty say it was Kawhi was going to guard Luka in Game Two? Um, interesting. That's interesting because Kawhi, to the point that Noah made, Kawhi really vaporized Porzingis. Porzingis was a total non-factor really in that game. And uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I didn't see this. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. That's if a Luke lot of, is going to get a, court. a sorry, ball screen every single play, I don't really see the point on putting Kawhi on him. I mean, because he, either he's going to have to uh, fight over screens and tire himself out, 
or he's just going to switch off and Mavs will just run him through a bunch of screens and get him as far away from the play as, as possible. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm trying, I'm overthinking this and playing like four dimensional chess in my head, but that's what Luca does to you though. That's the thing. There's no one good solution, but I, I, I'm look, if, if you need, uh, if, if you need Kawhi, if you're going in game two to, I think is like the, the end game defensive matchup. That's, that's saying a lot about the way they think game one went. I'm not sure that Tyloo is looking to extend, uh, extend Kawhi to have to guard, you know, 50 feet of court and then also be a 30 point right. scorer for them and play 40 minutes that, you know, that's just not Kawhi's jam. Right. Anymore. And also, um, this is not the, the Spurs. Right. Also, that. again, like, is it productive if it means that Porzingis starts to get loose? Because Porzingis was just right. totally uh, in a straitjacket. Um, Borek, you want to talk? Uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to get you on in a second. I just want to make one last point about the, the Luca thing. And one of the it, it seems like uh, what the Clippers did is they, they sort of went from kind of soft switches where they would um late switches so they let him string you out and then switch late and then try to go out there and Luca just stepped back to them to death like Zubac just I felt like he shot like seven uh yeah Dave Dave I'm I'm gonna get to all y'all in a second um but before I get before I get this point out um and then they started to trap to me though the the thing is it's like it's not about what you do against him it it's about how you do it it doesn't really matter what it is the problem that Luca presents is that I don't know. Tell me if this phrase makes sense. I tweeted it, and I don't. Maybe it's a totally his like moves are everyone else's counter moves. <laughs> Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Like when he? Yeah. No. You right when you right when you tweeted that, I saw a clip of him stepping into someone that was already five feet off him, and then going right back to the step back. So it made perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, it, it's. Yep. Uh, I appreciate that actually making sense, but it's like, yeah, it's like if you when you think he's going to do one thing, he's actually setting up to do the the sort of next move in the chain, and that's just sort of how you have to yeah. play him. Like when he, so like, like when he stops around the basket, like when he has space and he starts to drive, you have to basically expect that he's going to try to stop, make you stop, and then finish. He's going to go to the counter move, so. In that respect, I think like a lot of times it's really more about how you play him. You have to be really disciplined. You have to kind of almost recalibrate your sort of way you play. What I would like to see the Clippers do, I think, independent of matchups or whatever, I would probably put Paul George on him personally and just sort of let let go from there. Like I wouldn't do Kawhi. I kind of like the idea of Kawhi vaporizing Porzingis. But um, yeah, what I would do is I would I would continue to kind of play relatively the same kind of coverage that you were playing with Zubash, except instead of late switching, I would have my guy who's gotten screened off, like really chase him over the top. Like really like, like, like pursue him. Don't get the switch. Mm. Now you leave yourself vulnerable to him crossing back and shooting a step back. But to me, if you're going to, those step backs are a little bit different, I think, than like kind of you give him space and he dictates the step back. Like, I think you have more of a chance of those not going in. Um, so what I was disappointing to me, I, I would not put Patrick Beverly on him at all because that's just like useless. Like he's too big. He's too, too, too big for Patrick Beverly. So none of this stuff that, <laughs> you know, like that you would do, it doesn't make sense with him. So that's what I would do. I would just sort of try to be more disciplined. I think that there was a little bit of a sticker shock 
with getting used to his game. I still think the Clippers are going to win the series, uh, but that's just me. Um, oh, no speaker request. Someone made a speaker request just now, um, and I lost it. So if you want to come on, make that request. Um, until then, did you guys just see Donovan Mitchell will play in game two? <laughs> of course he is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, because he has to, because the way that the last 24 hours have gone with the Jazz is like how a season ends. Um, but it, it shouldn't be. I mean, we, we don't I don't want to talk about we'll talk about them last. But the the way information was getting out today about the decisions on his health was the last thing you want to see. And so the way that this was always going to play out was he was going to be back for game two, which may have been the thinking of his team in the first place. Try to steal a game without Mitchell, you know, not have Whoops. to worry about him. <laughs> and then you lose game one. and Exactly. And he's obviously going to play in game two. Yeah. So um, I'm glad. glad yeah. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Um, ben, do you want to talk about the Sixers or do you want to talk about the Jazz? Uh, let's do Sixers, man. Let's okay. do the Sixers. Um, yeah. What was it like being there, first of all? Like, cause I mean, that's the first thing you were there. You had pretty good seats. Um, what was it like? Oh, Tom wants to speak. Let me, yeah. let me get Tom on. Hey, Tom. Okay. Hi. Well, what's up? Uh, so you were talking about the Clippers mm-hmm. Dallas. So, um, you, you, you said that you think the Clippers will won the series. Right? I still think the Clippers will win the series, yes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think they are pretty deep trouble because uh, Luka made them sweat last year without Perzingis in the bubble. So maybe this year with Perzingis, he can have more more luck, kind of. Hey, look, it could and, happen. And that's totally fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, you steal game one. You take home court advantage back. I believe way more fans are going to be able to be in attendance in Dallas than are going to be able to be in attendance in Los Angeles for this series. That matters. That's one of the asymmetrical aspects of this playoffs right now is that some teams are playing. The Knicks are playing with 15,000. The When it goes back to D.C., the Wizards are going to be able to have five, I believe. Yeah, that's definitely um, a factor in the Philly you know, series. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so you know, there's something to be said for that. Plus, there's, just, there's no fear here. One thing I'll always... I love about Luca is he has approached his entire NBA career as if he's the best player on the court and the best player in the game. He's the way he's felt since he was 17 years old on the court playing professionally. Might be right. There's a lot of that. Might be right. (laughs) It's the same way way Tony Parker came into the league. These guys have been playing with with grown men since they were children. Yeah. And there's nothing too big. And that's, you know, doesn't doesn't matter if that's Kawhi and Paul George or, uh, you know, whoever, whoever they were playing, whoever is playing over in the EuroLeague. So like, I'm, it could totally be the case, and I'm very excited to see how this series plays out because a world where the Clippers lose again, I also think they miss Lou Williams. Nah, I don't. <laughs> which is I don't the think they miss Lou Williams. Dude, I, I, I do. I think that there. It was I a win-win this. trade. In I agree. Opinion. Looking at how Lou, Lou played for the Hawks and how Rondo's helping the Clippers, I think it was a win. I agree. I don't I think they miss think him. It, I think in playoff basketball, I, I think this is a nice thing to have some offensive when you're when your main guys aren't on. You know the 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 cooker, the the heater, um, the microwave guy. So anyhow, uh, interesting point there, and, and I think we'll have to see how the series plays out. I'm not gonna put my opinion on either way. I think pre-series, I thought this was a seven-game series, and I still do. Maxi Kleba questionable Ooh, for game so. two. I didn't see that. Um, I'm gonna get Blake on real quick. Blake, uh, sorry, sorry to uh, cut you off. Um, no, go ahead. Actually, I was gonna say one last thing. I think I mean you know D- Dwight Powell still not who he was. 
But at least from the tiny bit I saw, if the Mavs, you know, decide to have their bigs roll more in the pick and pop versus, I mean, pick and roll versus popping, the Clippers have an issue. I mean, I don't know if, if you saw that, but I thought the Clippers did not have a good s- solution to when, you know, they actually get uh, between the Mavs screener rolls. I think it, 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 to me, it ties back to the larger question of like kind of how you play Luca because you can't, you don't beat Luca by playing a better scheme. And so they were, they'd sort of switch from more of the switch, the late switch to the drop or to the um, trap. And that's just, I mean, you, you don't, you have to just sort of recalibrate how you play a player. And I, I don't think, I think that if you do that, you take a lot of other stuff away to me. Yeah. Like uh, the reason I still like the Clippers in this series is because Luke is going to have moments where it's like, he will be unstoppable. Like that series last year, like wasn't particularly close, even though it went six games. I mean, the the one win that they had was at the buzzer. I mean, I guess they could have won game one if there wasn't the objection. He wasn't healthy, man. Either his ankle was messed was up he? last year too. Mm. Okay. Yeah, his ankle was his ankle was toast by playoffs. Maybe. Last year. Um, look, I could be wrong. I mean, I I, I think it will be a long series, but um, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I I think I lost someone who was who wanted to speak. Um, was it who was it that was trying to get on? Well, um, on the positive side, if it goes too long, my game seven tickets will convey, and I'll be able. There you go. <laughs> to go in person, R- rooting for. There you, you. go. Yeah, so 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 if you're Tyrone Lu, how do you how do you want to defend Luca? Because they were they were trying uh, with some double teaming yeah. uh, in the first game, but the problem is they don't have uh, how should I say they don't have big enough defenders. Like Kawhi and Paul George both are shorter than Luca, so he can play right. Them. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, no. we we talked about this just before I think you came on. Um, so I don't want to necessarily repeat myself, but to me, sorry. Uh, but to me, like kind of the way you do it generally is you, you just sort of have to, instead of, you have to kind of thread the needle between the late sort of switching. And I don't think the trapping works. I think what you, you need the guy coming behind him to chase more and force him into the step back because the, the guy, chasing behind him is coming at him rather than switching and letting him dictate the step back. That's what I would do. And I would stop playing Patrick Beverly and him because that does not work. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think any, anything works against Luca. That That's personal. <laughs> in my opinion. If you switch, if you switch, he's going to toast you. If you double team, he's going to toast you. So I think the, the Clippers are in deeper trouble than they think. Well, you might be right. That's Look, it's, he's a, uh, he's really good. Um, I get. I don't think. I think it's definitely not any one scheme that you can play because I think it's more just. I think it takes a little bit of time to recalibrate to Luca's style of play, and we'll see if that happens. Um, sorry, did someone want to speak that I missed? Uh, but if not, Ben, we were talking about the Sixers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's let's go to. So we got you know we got we don't want to run too long on this. We should probably hit the rest of these series up. Let's let's do a few minutes here on the Sixers Wizards. We'll do a little Celtics Nets, and we'll close with um, we'll close with the Jazz and, and, and Memphis from last night. Um, okay, so Sixers Wizards, uh, Mike. Yeah, I was there. You were on TV, and this is good because, or you're watching on TV, yeah. Because we have slightly different points of view uh, of how the game looked. Um, we'll start with the obvious. Um, you know, you have a game of some pretty crazy physical 
people, both in the way Westbrook plays, the way Simmons plays, and the way Embiid plays. And the refs decided, Scott Foster's crew decided to come out and call a lot of ticky tack fouls. So Embiid was essentially not part of the first half of the game. Um, All three of which live looked like pretty light fouls. Um, maybe, Maybe one of the three was a legitimate one. That being said, Joel barely played in the first half. So you don't learn a lot about how the series is going to go when you're having Dwight Howard, Ben Simmons minutes. Um, Two things that stood out to me. uh, One, you know, the intensity of defense against Beal was extremely high and he still got his, he's an incredible offensive player. And yet Westbrook still wanted to dominate the ball. The best possessions the wizards had were when Ish Smith and Neto were essentially facilitating to get Beal the ball or Burton's off a pin down. Um, it was weird because is it though? Like, is it weird with Russ? Let's just, I'll say this. It's not weird at all. It's exactly what you hate. Right. And uh, getting to watch it, you know, live and in person, Russ looked a little bit off too. He looked like he was kind of, I don't know if he was sick or what, but he just looked a little bit off. His energy was, was, was sporadic. For him, energy is always a constant. And he looked um, off against the Celtics too. I mean, really it's what out of the last three games, there's only been one. Uh, so I agree. Uh, sorry, Blake did want to talk. Uh, Blake, what's up? Wait, did that work? God, I'm terrible at this. I'm <laughs> awful at this. Uh, yeah. Um, well, if he when he comes back on, we'll try that again. But yeah, no, I agree. It was. You mentioned something to me that you saw you you saw him like on the bench, like kind of away from his teammates at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no idea what that means because I don't study all the bench. Uh, but he, yeah. it does speak a little bit to maybe there was something a little off about him. And maybe he's more hurt than he lets on. I mean, you know, Russ is never going to talk about an injury. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, I was right behind the Wizards bench. So I did get to kind of hear everything and, and see everything uh, that was going on there. And, you know, a few other things that stood out to me uh, about the game. Uh, and I'll, I'll do this in the perspective of I'm obviously a, a dire Sixers fan and season ticket holder for many years now, but this is my first game, you know, as many of us are attending for the first time in a long mm-hmm. time, 10,000 person capacity. So half capacity, 50% capacity in Philadelphia. Um, very loud, great job by the arena to kind of keep things safe and keep things mask on. So full credit to the Wells Fargo center and, and the organization for, for still giving it an A plus atmosphere. Um, yeah, immediate, immediately taking the crowd and sort of the frenzy out was something that was a little bit weird. Uh, you know, watching Pete go to the bench five and a half, four and a half minutes into the first quarter, essentially only play another two, three minutes in the rest of the uh, the first half, still get 30 minutes in the game. The minutes he was in, it looked like an eight versus one. The minutes he yeah. was out, it, it looked a lot different, you know, and that's that's obviously a big part of this, the flow of the game. I think Simmons and Embiid were plus 24 when they were on the court together yesterday. And that's, you know, that goes without saying, but the, the highlights of the game really were Tobias Harris getting and credit to doc, not an in-game wizard when it comes to his coaching tactics, but he did a great job of getting lots of different smaller matchups for Tobias yeah. and, and Harris was cooking. I had a great game. A great, great game. He, he was, he was calm and smooth. And when he's you know, cooking offensively, he goes at a nice pace without going too fast. And he just seems to have a, a great repertoire, right hand, left hand and mid range. Uh, as well as, you know, in, in rhythm three opportunities. Now, a big part of this yesterday and why it was close, and when the Sixers did make their run in the third, they just hit some threes. You know, Seth Curry came on in the second yeah. half and hit yeah. some shots. Dan- Danny Green hit some shots. Sixers missed a ton of open looks in the first half where there was definitely a little bit of 
a little bit of hype, a little bit of, you know, what I would consider, um, you know, overzealous, uh, emotional basketball being played. And that, that happens, yeah. right? That, that's one of the things we've talked about is the theme of these first rounds. Um, but look, Beal, yesterday was a game that felt like Beal was going to potentially steal game one. He was playing at right. that type of level. He was creating, he, he didn't look injured at all. He had great lift going to the basket. I mean, he, he has this incredible way. You've talked about this before, but you know, his body control, Beal hangs in midair. I, I don't know if he's the, the highest or furthest whatever jumper, but he's an incredible jumper. Yeah. And it looked like he had all the lift in the world yesterday. Um, and Burton was hitting shots and Ish was getting to the basket. And, you know, the, the, the other guys, you know, Rui, Rui did not play well. Hachimura did not play well. He looked very out of out of sync, out of place, kind of floated a lot on yeah. offense and on defense. It's just between taking the school. Uh, Gafford played well, but foul you know, trouble again. A game, a game where Joe, a game where Joel, all these guys, any young jumping big in the league, like you know uh, Williams on Boston, um, you know uh, again Gafford uh, with the Wizards. You can go down the list. Joel is a god at getting them in foul trouble. He's he's just got so many moves. His footwork is so good mm-hmm. now. And his mid-range jumper. I mean, you saw at the end of the game. I liked what they. You know, I like what they ran for him at the end of the game. I yeah. thought it was really, really good. Actually, let me ask you a question. Uh, yeah. Because I, I, this is something that I'm curious what you think. Did Ben Simmons play Bradley Beal well? Yeah. So the answer is yes, but and the but is that the Sixers are okay, and they do this way too often. I think. I think that they switch too uh, too easily. I think there needs to be a reluctance on that. And again, part of it was Ben did have three fouls kind of, you know, three or four minutes into the third. Uh, and one of them was a, could, a bang, bang play that could go either way where Beal was pushing off of Simmons and Simmons kind of had a hold of his hand. It could have been offensive. It could have been defensive. I thought he played good defense. I thought Matisse actually played better defense on Beal. But the problem, obviously, with Matisse is that he's a very limited offensive player. And when he's in the game at the same time as Ben, you have two right. non-offensive threats and that takes away spacing for Joel. So I, I, both of them and being able to, and it's a, it's a luxury, obviously, to be able to, number one, put Danny Green on Westbrook so he doesn't have to chase anyone off screens because Danny can't chase anyone anymore. But he's good at staying in front of mm-hmm. Westbrook, and he's always, he's always played Westbrook pretty tough. And that Westbrook will settle for jump shots. Right. Now, with that, being said, with that being said, I did think that Ben played good defense in denial, good defense at the top of the key. But you, you just have to live with the fact that Beal is going to, like he did all season long, quite literally, he's probably going to get his 30. You can play great defense on a guy and still give up 30. And I think the, the, the numbers bear it out that he did play, Ben did play well, pretty good defense. See, th- this him. is what I was going to get to, right? If you yeah. look at the matchup data, and I was stunned when I saw this because it did not jive with what I saw, at least. If you look at the matchup yeah. data, what like I, I'm trying to read this NBA.com stuff, but basically... Beal was like one of six when Ben Simmons was the primary defender on him or something like that. Um, it was, yeah, it was brutal too. on him. And it was really, according to the matchup data, like it was really when Danny Green, Tobias Harris and George Hill were on him that Beal scored a lot. That doesn't quite, maybe I need to rewatch the game and watch a little closely. That's not what my impression was after watching it. My thought was, that's why I, I wonder how they get this matchup data. So, work. so that's my question too. When when Beal drives, say Ben's supposed to go over the top of the screen and 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 essentially allow for Beal to get into the lane. At that point, is he no longer? And this is a question I don't know. Is he no longer? The it's a good question. Defenders? I I got to be honest. Like I you need know. to ask Seth. Seth would know this. Yeah. But Seth, Seth would, would know, know this stuff, and I I don't know exactly how they measure. But 
I, I, it, that's not what I saw, really. I'm not... To me, like, the problem with this sort of stat and the problem that Beal really provides, and it's to a lesser extent, it's also why Bertans is a tough matchup for Philly, is... There, when it's like one on one and like Ben's able to square Beal up, like yeah, Ben shut him down, like that makes mm-hmm. sense to me. But the problem is that Beal come moves so much off the ball, he comes off these pin downs. He he just is such a he's not Steph Curry off the ball, but he's like kind of very close to it with his off ball movement. And they're they're he's never bringing the ball up, so they usually got somebody kind of passing to him off this curl, and then he's attacking from there with, like, a little bit of an advantage. In those situations, like, I don't know exactly how you measure who the primary defender is, but that's where Beal really gives the Sixers problems because Ben, Ben again, is a much better, like, square up and guard defender, but he's not as good if he's chasing you. You know, and he he's, for whatever reason, Beal's ability to get separation from him coming into the screen is something that he really struggles with. It's the same with Booker. I mean, Booker plays uh, Philly really well too, right? So it's the same thing. So it's it's like, yeah, matchup data, like when he get a chance to square him up, like, yeah, that's good. But, and it's not like there's a better option, but I don't think, I think the problem is that Beal can kind of come off and get separation and then get downhill. And then at that point, Joel's not jumping out on those plays. Uh, same problem with Bertans. I mean, most the Sixers are going to have trouble with Bertans on the pin down because, especially if they have Seth Curry guarding him, because he can just shoot over him, and and B's not going to want to jump out. And that's, I mean, Beal's now getting a head start where he's able to kind of use that space and and convert and finish. And you know, I don't know who that reflects on who he scored on, but it, it that to me is ultimately stems from. Simmons's inability to stay with him off the ball and to what to that degree like again I'm not sure what the answer is and obviously it doesn't really matter because yeah. they won but that's why Beal and Booker are but, such tough matchups like it's not because of totally so I, I just think you have to be careful with that matchup data I guess is what it, my my response yeah, to that no, is I'm, I'm, I agree and I, when I saw that I, I did a bit of a double take because it's not how it felt live yeah and ultimately you know that there were um there were instances yesterday. Simmons is very good at getting low and being physical and, and meeting guys who are five, six inches shorter than right. out 25 feet from the basket. Uh, and then part of that scheme, you have to have support on the wings. And look, one thing the Sixers did quite well yesterday and, and specifically in the, in the second half was they pinched the lane a lot better. Now, if Beal's going to get his buckets in the, in the lane, then so be it. He made some miraculous shots right. around the rim yesterday. Um, and that's but you fine. don't want him but coming at you. That's the problem. Once he right. comes that's at right. you, he can do that. So what you really need to do is you need to stop him from coming at you. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. And and part of that's just again the uh, getting a curl and having shooters around you. So you know you're only going to go. And, and again, another part of that, Mike, is that Joel was in foul trouble, so he was being. That's a good point. That's a really his, good point. Yeah, that's defense. a really good point. You know, maybe he steps out more if he's on foul trouble. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think that game was probably bad news for the Wizards that they lost because I think they're in trouble now. But um, still, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, again, if Beal were – I guess the question, too, is like how much can Beal keep doing this? Uh, You know, can he hold up? You've almost – if you're the Wizards, you've almost spoiled like the game that he might steal. So I I agree. I will say uh, hearing what you are telling me about Philly Sports Radio and the negativity coming out of there makes me very happy. That the whiz about it's the just, result of that game. I really just wanted to troll you fans, your Sixers fans, because uh, I knew we wouldn't have a chance to win. 
Well, you don't have to troll us. We'll troll ourselves. The the, the point about Philadelphia Sports Talk Radio, and I, I, I put this in one big ball. I know. I lost you. Ben, okay. you there? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, is that is the point of Philly Sports Talk Radio is that there are definitely hosts who can see the forest through the trees and can acknowledge that uh that even though Ben had six points, he was still very good yesterday. His overall court game. Was I don't excellent. know if he was good. I just he, don't know if it mattered. I, he was. Good. He was all right. He was. Like, they didn't need him to be good in that game. They just they needed him to do. He had nine offensive rebounds yesterday. I think that matters. I think fifteen and fifteen is not a light stat line. And he also didn't have. I think he had like one or two turnovers. Um, ben Ben's just this type of player where the thing that in Philadelphia that is highlighted is this over six from the free throw line and under ten points of scoring. Um, the team scored like whatever hundred and twenty something points yesterday. So. Um, 125 points. It was not like they needed Ben. If Ben didn't get his, that's what I'm saying. Points, they weren't that's what I'm saying. There. They they didn't yeah, need him, which is fine. Is that, like that's, that's why you have other players on the team. Like why do we care? That's right. <laughs> that's right. And the, the thing is, no what what no one will acknowledge in Philadelphia. And like, I shouldn't say no one. But most people don't acknowledge because this is an old, you know. There's there's always deep seated and this you don't, me, but there's always deep seated. You don't got to explain Philly like talk radio to me. I'm just happy. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And so the but the point is, if he could be a Draymond or a, a Ben Wallace or whatever it is, but with other aspects to his game that are you know are unique, um, that's great. If you can have Toby score thirty and Joel you know get his thirty and your other guys shoot decent, it works three, out. You know, team not all not all championship teams are constructed the same exactly. Um, and the, the burden of being a number one pick is something that always gets brought up around yeah, here. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, not everyone's Who cares. Ben is a Ben's a special player in very weird ways. And he can do things like 15 and 15 and also over six in the free throw line. And I'll, I'll let you know that all six of those free throws were awful. They all look good. good. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I don't want to bore yeah. people with uh, more of the Sixers game, yeah. but you want to talk quickly about the jazz uh, game. I know we're yeah, running so, out of folks yeah. here, but uh We'll just do this real quick. We'll do this real quick. Mike, you think the series is far from over. In fact, you think the Jazz well, are still well positioned. There's obviously all the, the crazy stuff about with what's going on in the Mitchell situation. And they're talking to the media now as we speak. It sounds like they're trying to shove it under the rug. But Mitchell was like, yeah, I wanted to play. And they didn't let me. Obviously, there's something going on there that like reveals tensions deep beneath the surface. So that will could very well come back and haunt Utah in ways that like are impossible for me to really to elaborate. I would say that if that, if none of that was happening and we're just evaluating what we saw on the floor, I said to you over under 1.5 more wins for the Grizzlies this series, I'm taking the under. I think that that game, look, I, 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 the, what that game was a classic, like rust over rest game. The Grizzlies were more up to it. They've been playing. They've been sort of having that sort of, that pressure on them. Utah's kind of been dithering around with injuries for a while. To me, that was what that game was about. And I think that that is a classic game one advantage, and I'm not sure that will sustain. So I still would be confident in Utah winning the series somewhat comfortably. Uh, pending again, like what the unless the Mitchell situation just totally submarines them from the inside. But based on what I actually saw in the game, like I would, I think Jazz fans shouldn't be overreacting here. Uh, is Dylan Brooks the most confident player in the league? Might be. It's a league of very confident players, and he's. I think he has that combination of like 
chip on the shoulder slash he was the best player on his college team, a pretty good college team, mind you, uh, at Oregon. Plus, he's a Canadian player, and I think all the a lot of the young Canadian guys still were an additional chip on their shoulder. Uh, I, I look Brooks is some weird combination of incredibly confident, always proving something, trying to prove something, and then mash that all together with the team is young enough that he gets to kind of be the emotional leader, despite being in his own right a pretty young guy. Yeah. It's not going to be it's not going to be JV and the rest of the team. You know, it's not going to be Kyle Anderson. Right. It doesn't seem like K's personality is to be uh, you know overly exuberant. So I think it's a lot of things that lend Brooks the ability to be that cocky, confident leader for a young team. And on top of it, he's playing great. If you're playing well enough, you can keep putting yourself in that position to to talk trash, to to play super physically. You know, the physicality that that uh, Brooks brings to the game and in general. I'll say this: You talk about you talk about rust and rest. You know, sure that uh, rust versus uh, uh, rest at all or whatever it is. And I, I look at Memphis and I think, well, they've been playing playoff style basketball, like you had mentioned before, for weeks right. now. But on top of it, like all these young guys didn't have playoff experience per se, and they got it before getting to get to the playoffs. That's kind of an interesting, you know, mental dynamic. That is interesting. Um, Donovan Mitchell readily admits he was upset and frustrated. This is Tim McMahon by being held out of game one. He plainly believes he should have played, but he's ready to move on. Excuse my language, but we've got shit to handle. Uh, Quinn Snyder referenced the very famous uh, Ted Lasso quote uh, about goldfish that uh, do you know what? Remember that quote? Do you watch Ted Lasso? Uh, okay. The, the be a goldfish. Cause they had the shortest memories. He referenced that quote. Uh, which, of course, is a great dodge uh, of the question. Yeah, I mean, it, you're right that Brooks is kind of in like this perfect situation in the perfect team in terms of the the youth they have. Uh, and so so here's the thing, right? Utah went 12 of 47 from three. <laughs> now, this is obviously a larger question, which is, you know, these teams that shot the ball really well during the regular season, uh, can they do it in the playoffs? And if you're too reliant on that, like, and shots will not go down, it will be an interesting test case. You seem to be, when we were talking about this game earlier, much more worried about Utah in this series. Can you explain why you think I'm wrong? Yeah, so I'll say this. I, I, I'm tired of betting against Memphis, both with, in my physical gambling and with money, uh, as well as like the emotional hedging I keep doing. It's like, well, this team's too young and they're kind of awkwardly built. Even the guys that bring off the bench – you know, you're talking about uh, Melton, Bain, Allen, Tillman, Jones. Like, Jones is the veteran mm-hmm. of the crew. Yeah, it's amazing, right? <laughs> you know, like, it's it's such a young team. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, but that being said, like, the, you watch the Jazz play, and they desperately need Mitchell because he fortifies the team. He solidifies the roles of everyone else. Connolly actually played, I think, we, again, we talked about, but Connolly played pretty well. by far their best player. I mean, him and Bogdanovich yeah. in the second half. Yep, despite the fact that his legs, you would expect, might not be under him. But look, when Ingles is thrust into a starting position, that takes away from your bench. When Clarkson shoots terribly yesterday, he was 0 of 8 from 3, 5 of 16 from the field, then your you know your most explosive scorer off the bench is all of a sudden a net negative because Clarkson doesn't do a whole lot else on the basketball mm-hmm. court. And then you look at the Jazz, it's a, it's an, a supporting cast of players. Niang, Favors, et cetera, they're there to give you good minutes and, and be solid, but they're not guys who can essentially come in and change the flow of a game. So if you get off to a weird start, and not to mention the JV Gobert matchup is funny because they're both these weird kind of mechanic traditional right. centers. And that 
in a weird way hurts Gobert. Well, it did in game it's, one it's at like, least. Yeah, I mean, look, Valanciunas can play 39 minutes and foul out Gobert. That's a, that's a, yeah. a very interesting subject. To me, I, yeah. I would be surprised if that happens again. Maybe it will. I mean, it's certainly it's like a the one thing you definitely saw in the fourth quarter is when John Morant's coming at you, he can kind of basically use JV's offensive rebounding ability as kind of – it's as if he's the roller – and it's as if he's like kind of you can pass him so he can throw those little floaters up, create that space, manipulate the big, knowing that JV can get the offensive rebound. So there's a little bit of that going on. Uh, I don't know what's going on with your mic, by the way. Um, you might want to. I'm mute. here. Can you hear me? I can hear you, but you got static. Can you yeah. move? So, so there's a little bit of that. Um, but that to me speaks a little bit to the sticker shock element of that game. I thought, I just thought Utah was not up for it, not prepared, not uh, in rhythm. And so when they got punched in the mouth by, by Memphis and to me, the key play of that game, I tweeted about it was when they're up, the jazz are up 16 and on this run, there's this long rebound and Dylan Brooks, who had driven and kicked it out to Desmond Bain, he's under the basket. This long rebound probably pops like 20 feet out. Boyan Bogdanovich is running for it. Dylan Brooks outleaps him, runs from underneath the hoop, tips it out, tips it to Bain, gets a floater. Instead of it being potentially a 16 or 17-point game, it's now a 12-point game. Those are the types of plays where I just thought Utah was not in rhythm, not in the playoff flow. And those plays made a huge difference. And I just don't know, like, now that they've gotten that game one of the rust out of the way, like will we see Gobert in particular be less sloppy? Uh, maybe we won't, but I think we will. And, I mean, to me, if I'm yeah. Utah, here's what I'm thinking, right? Conley Gobert pick and roll against Valanciunas and especially against Morant got me whatever I wanted. Like I got great stuff out of that. Like they can't guard – they cannot yeah. guard that. And the biggest reason uh, – yeah, I'm seeing this um, – that's a good question, Nishan. We're going to end on that one, but um, after I get to this, but yeah, um, you got what you wanted out of that. Like, I don't think that Memphis has a lot of answers if that's what you're doing. And by the second half, they also did a good job of picking on John defense with Bogdanovich. Um, really, foul trouble kind of screwed up that. The threes, good yep. shots. Um, I think Mitchell's return to your point pushes Clarkson down because Clarkson was the worst player on the floor for them that game, not just on offense, but on defense too. When he was in the game, when you have Clarkson in the game, you can only have, you have to put a bad defender on either Brooks or Ja, And that's a problem. You don't have that problem if he's not in the game and just the, the trick, the trickle down effect was critical. Uh, So those are positives for me. I, I think more threes will fall. They're good. They're now used to the pressure. I am relatively confident that if they can overcome whatever the hell this drama is with Mitchell, like all credit to Memphis, by the way, I think it's great that Memphis is in the playoffs, like and not gold state. Like I think Memphis really showed us something. I, you know, that was great. Um, but I still think that over under 1.5 more wins for Memphis, I'd take in the under. Yeah. So essentially you're saying you don't think it goes set. Correct. Yeah, yeah, that, that's probably fair. Um, we'll see. Again, uh, look, 
we're assuming Mitchell comes back and he's 100% oh, right. yeah. and plays 38 minutes and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So uh, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But I, I do think it's the best possible thing for the series is Memphis winning game one. And, That's true. Uh, as a neutral here, I'm all for that. Uh, let's close with this this last question here from uh, Sean Dave. Um, let's see. Mike, I'll ask mm. you because this is what I want. This is why this question is such a good one to end on. Uh, more big, a big picture question. Either the Jazz, Clippers, or Lakers should be most concerned about their series. That is a really good question. Thank you. Um, I don't know. It's good. I, I, here's what I'd say: If Chris Paul is healthy, the Lakers for sure. I don't think he's healthy. Mm-hmm. If Donovan Mitchell drama is nothing, then the Jazz are last on that list. If the Donovan Mitchell drama is something more. Then they're first on this list. Um, I think again, it, it depends on Chris Paul's health. I would say if Chris Paul is able to play, is able to use his right hand for the rest of this series, the Lakers are should be most concerned. If he can't, mm. then I don't know. I'm not sure any of them really should be that concerned. Probably still the Lakers again, just because they're playing the best opponent. Um, but yeah. that's a good question. I, I think. Yeah, to me, like the if Chris Paul doesn't hurt his hand, I think the Suns win that game by a lot more. Like I think that that they were dramatically outplaying the Lakers before that incident. Yeah. So, I, I think I think the Clippers and Lakers are the answer here. I think the Clippers should be somewhat concerned because they don't have the best player in the series. That's different than That's the other true. two. That's true. That's good point. Um, and that and and that matters um, for sure. The the Lakers should be concerned because they have yet to play good basketball for many months straight. Like this is a team that kind of played sub 500 ball without most of their call it, you know, Anthony Davis getting back to Achilles strength and LeBron getting back to ankle strength. There's still the unproving component of look the, a lot of the reason they were good last year was they did have the stability of the Danny greens and, and, and Dwight Howard's and, uh, and guys fitting into roles perfectly. Plus Anthony Davis shot unbelievably in the bubble. That's a good point. You, you know, I, it's something I tend to discredit a little too quickly. I should, I should yeah. credit it more. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's to say that this Suns team is well coached, uh, extremely hungry and can play a pretty diverse set of, set of ball. Like, there's not one way that the Suns are going to potentially win each game. And uh, I think there's something to be said for the fact that they might just be the better team here. Now, does the better team always win? No. But if I'm the Lakers or Clippers, I'm a little more concerned than the Jazz. The Jazz will get back their primary score for game two. Um, and ultimately, they are playing you know, probably by far the worst team in this in this scenario. So that'd be my answer there. Um, of all the first-round matchups um, that of, of teams that should be scared in the East and the West, uh, I, I think it's probably the Lakers who should be the most nervous here, uh, coming off winning a championship. What about Denver? I mean, we're not going to talk too much about that see, game. Yeah, but... yeah, we're not, see, this is the thing. We didn't talk about the Celtics and Nets, and we, didn't, we haven't talked much about the uh, the Nuggets and, and, and Portland because those games are tonight. I it just feel like that the Nuggets are an unfortunate situation where the best possible Nuggets team isn't the one that is in the playoffs right now. and. They essentially traded away one of their best wing defenders, Gary Harris, and they'll play a team of three, you know, three to four, depending upon when Simons is in, but almost entirely perimeter scoring players. 
Nurkic is kind of a fun, weird matchup for Jokic. Although Jokic played fine. He's great one. game one, but I mean, it was interesting. Yeah. It was interesting yeah. that that Jokic they they employed the 2005 Dallas Mavericks defense on him, where they just they single covered him and let him score at will to take away yep. his passing. Yep. Seemed to work. Yeah. Exactly. No, I think you're right. I mean, th- that that's a bad matchup now because of you basically built yep. your team uh, to beat a different type of team. You lose Jamal Murray. Now you play the worst possible team. Um, so I would say they're probably in trouble. You're you're saying among like kind of title contenders, the Lakers are the. Yeah, yeah that's probably right. That's right. That's right. Yep. And and I feel bad for the Nuggets. I I like the Nuggets team. I I, I wish that Jokic had all, all of his weapons, and I wish that we got to see Murray come back to another playoff run like last year, where he was electric and, and really started to make a name for himself. Um, yeah, it, it's an unfortunate way that the season kind of moved. Uh, away from the favor of the Nuggets and then into a terrible matchup against, you know, a hungry team who's dangerous. Yeah. Like, Portland played really well down there. They the did. Match. They got the matchup that favored them best, and, and I don't think anyone really wants to run on the Dame and CJ now with, with a healthy Nurkic who's got his legs under him, and they're just a much better team when, when Nurkic is healthy as well. That's, again, something for two years straight that's been pretty off and right. on. So I haven't, I haven't even thought about that because, you know, in the lines on that, that was a toss-up. Vegas, I think, may even have Portland as a slight favorite. More so, than slight, right? I feel like at this point. Well, now, now they right. are, yeah. But pr- prior to the series, they were right. a favorite despite not having home and, you know, the MVP front runner on one team. But, you know, again, the smart smart money there is that it's a terrible matchup for, for the Nuggets. Um, so, yeah, that, that's my opinion there. Quick, quick last thought on – and that's played like three bad quarters of basketball and still won pretty easily. And yep. they're probably going to steamroll the Celtics. Celtics have an opportunity to, to put up, you know, a fight tonight and make it a series. But I don't see it going that way. Harden's basically just playing facilitation point guard and getting his legs under him while getting back in shape in real time in the playoffs. Um, so that's a luxury you have when you have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and, uh, <laughs> and a rejuvenated Blake. And you know, it's just... The Nets are going to be a really difficult team for anybody in the NBA to beat. That's I think case. that this is just a – you can beat the Nets. They're, they are beatable. I think whoever gets out of the Milwaukee-Miami series can beat them. But the team that's not going to beat them is the Celtics because the Celtics yeah. basically play a mirrored style with worse players. So that's just not the way to go. Yeah. Anyway, that, that that's where I yeah. see that yeah. too. Uh, anybody in the Do chat it. have any final thoughts? If not – uh, do you have any final thoughts, Ben? I gotta say, like, this has been a great that was a great weekend of basketball. Oh, it's fantastic. And- it's all the things coming together, Mike. It's it's good matchups. It was well played games for the most part. It's fans back in the arenas. Um it's all the stuff. It it, it was a perfect storm of, of what the league was looking for, I hope. Um, because I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm stoked for tonight's game. I can't wait for the Bucks Heat game tonight. That's my favorite ser- series of the first round. Yeah. I think it might be yours as well, and uh, I'm very excited to see how this game two plays. Yeah, out. yeah. I mean, man, we could talk a lot about that game one if we weren't recording this on a Monday, uh, because <laughs> boy, that was that was tense, man. I mean, that I I still I, I feel like Miami needed that game, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe there is something mental that Miami does to Milwaukee, but I feel like they that was a big golden opportunity missed by the Heat, even with Jimmy Butler struggling. But yeah. we'll see. Uh, it's certainly like again, like te- the tension of that series is just terrific. Oh I mean, yeah, it, it feels like Eastern Conference Finals 
because the, the the way that this all came together. Also, just the sim- the Bucks let them in, man. They did not let them in. They let them into. The oh, yeah, they wanted game. it. They wanted they want- the game to play them. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it certainly wasn't great ball in game one. That was a very ugly game, but it was tense. I, the last thing I want to say, okay, I, I made this point, and I'm gonna. This is something I keep beating the drum. This is gonna be a huge subject of the book that I'm writing. I don't understand how one can watch. I mean, probably they didn't, but most people probably didn't watch back to back the Milwaukee Miami and then the Clippers Mavericks game. But like, even if you watch parts of those both of those games. I don't understand how you can watch those two games, how different they were, where the like just the the way that the game in Milwaukee Miami was so down in the mud and in the Clippers Mavs game was so spread out. How can you watch those two games, any point of those games, and say the problem with the NBA now is there's not enough stylistic diversity? I don't <laughs> understand how you could do that. If, if you're doing yep. that, what that tells me is you're just looking at box scores. I'm sorry to be harsh about it, but like there, those games could not have been more different in terms of style. Like basically, the the Heat the Heat Bucks game was played on like a 16 foot court, and the Clippers Mavs game was played <laughs> on a 32 foot court, right? Like yep. I don't understand how anyone can make that claim after watching those games. There is so much stylistic diversity. Um, no, real quick. Um, Okay, fine. I'll let you. I'll let you uh, come on and I'll invite you to speak. Uh, what happened to Brooke? I don't know exactly what you mean by that. Well, let's talk about that one later in the series. I think I'm at a table yeah, that one, yeah. but um, we're we got this is hour forty five. We went, went long. real long. Close it out. Yeah, and then we'll, we'll we'll talk to everyone again. Yeah, no, this was great. Thank you guys for all the questions. But yeah, I mean, it's just the the game is if you really watch how these teams get their shots like there is so much happening I and mean, to me it just makes sense if you're using more of the court there's more places on the court to use therefore it looks different therefore there's more diversity to me it makes just makes sense yep. um yeah it, i see what you're referring to with uh yeah duncan robinson got loose a lot um but i don't want to go too deep in that game because of the the game is tonight but yeah i mean i don't understand how can you say that there's not silas diversity in this sport right now i just don't to me that doesn't make any sense when you watch those two games back to back that's the lazy casual take i don't mean to be don't, don't i don't mean to be harsh but i think it's not just a lazy casual take i think it's like a lot of smart people are saying that and it to me you're just looking at outcomes instead of actually looking at what happens um sure but anyway that's what i hope the book solves so All stay right. tuned Ben, it's been a pleasure. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, good time. Thank you to everybody who asked questions. We'll be back next week on this. I think we'll do uh, some live broadcasts during the playoffs. I don't know if we're going to do any on Twitter spaces. I don't think we're going to do any over the next couple of days because I got people, my family staying over, so I don't want to wake them up. But we're going to do some, <laughs> uh, whether it's me and or me and Ben or me and other people, I do want to do them. Uh, we'll kind of be able to kind of – react to games together. We're going to do some of that. Um, but until next time, friends, until next time, Ben, this has been Limited Upside Live Chat. Oh.